Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Library Company. I'm John Van Horn, the director, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you all here this evening. Uh, this is really a terrific turnout for our Freedom Forum, uh, celebrating Juneteenth. Juneteenth, I hope most of you know, is the day in 1865 when Union troops arrived in Texas and announced the end of the Civil War and the freeing of the slaves. Uh, and this was a couple of months after Appomattox, but Texas being far away and isolated hadn't gotten the word yet. So that, this was a very important day in Texas and uh, soon came to be a very important day for African Americans across the country as they began to celebrate Freedom Day or Emancipation Day on June 19th uh, in, in subsequent years. This is the library company's third uh, Juneteenth program. Uh, back in 2007, we had Nat and Yana Brandt uh, speaking about the new book they had just published called In the Shadow of the Civil War, Passmore Williamson and the Rescue of Jane Johnson, uh, about which uh, more in a couple of minutes. And then uh, last year, we had uh, Richard Newman, who's here this evening. There he is in the back row uh, from the University of Rochester, uh, who was speaking about his then brand new uh, book that just came out, his biography of Richard Allen, uh, the founder of Bethel uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church. So this is our third uh, consecutive program uh, acknowledging the Juneteenth date. <clears throat> We're presenting this program in conjunction with our program in African-American history, which is something we began a couple of years ago. Uh, it was funded by a very generous grant from the Albert M. Greenfield Foundation, uh, and it really builds on one of our great collection strengths. Uh, for those of you who don't know much about the library company, you can read about us in the brochure that we left on the chairs. Uh, you should know that in this building we have about half a million books above us on many stack floors, as well as a large collection of manuscripts, uh, graphic materials, ephemera, art and artifacts. One of the great strengths of our collection, which goes back to our founding in 1731, is African American history. And it's because of that that we established that special program. And the, uh, the program has funding for uh, acquisitions, uh, exhibitions, um, conservation and cataloging, uh, public programs such as the one we're, we're presenting this evening. So we're very pleased to acknowledge the Greenfield Foundation's uh, support for that program. Also, research fellowships are a big part of that as well. And the summer is when we have many of our fellows in residence, and I think some of you here this evening are our current uh, library company fellows. We're going to have three eminent scholars uh, speaking to us this evening on various aspects of the struggle for freedom uh, throughout American history. Uh, Robert Engs is a professor of history emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania. He's going to speak on Who Freed the Slaves? The Black Revolutionary Struggle for Freedom. Uh, next to him is Elizabeth Varon, who's Professor of History and Associate Director of the Center for Humanities at Temple, who is going to speak on From Appomattox to Juneteenth, Lee's Defeat and the End of Slavery, exploring the significance of the Confederate surrender uh, at Appomattox. And on my far left is Randall Miller, Professor of History at St. Joseph's University, who will speak on Juneteenth before and after African-American freedom celebrations, historical memory, and contemporary activism. Each of them will speak in turn. I'll introduce them uh, before each of them speaks. Uh, they'll speak individually, and then they'll uh, form a panel at the end when they'll have a chance to talk to each other and also to field some questions uh, from you in the audience. I also want to acknowledge another uh, presence this evening, uh, Phil Lapsansky at the back of the room. Uh, Phil has been on the library company staff for more than 35 years. 
Uh, he's currently curator of African-American history, a widely recognized authority on that uh, subject. He conceived of this evening's program and invited our, our three panelists to participate. Uh, and he also conceived a project about 10 years ago that involved two of our three uh, uh, scholars this evening. In anticipation of the Republican Party holding its 2000 uh, presidential nominating convention in Philadelphia, uh, Phil planned an exhibition on the origins of the Republican Party, which of course go back to the mid-19th century and Philadelphia, of course, playing a major role. He recruited Bob Engs and Randall Miller to be his uh, co-conspirators, I suppose you'd say. They uh, co-curated with him the exhibition we did, and they organized a symposium uh, that we had during the course of that exhibition. And then the two gentlemen uh, co-edited the volume of essays that we published that came out of that symposium, uh, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Uh, called The Birth of the Grand Old Party, the Republicans' First uh, Generation. So uh, our interest in these subjects and our collaboration with these scholars goes back a, a number of years. I also want to mention that this program is sort of one bookend, the, the opening of uh, a month-long Freedom Month, uh, so-called. Uh, we're going to end this uh, on July 18th with another program that will bookend this one, uh, dealing with the liberation of Jane Johnson. Uh, we're going to be dedicating a state historical marker uh, on that event that will take place down at Penn's Landing, which is where the incident took place. Uh, on July 18, 1855, uh, Jane Johnson, uh, an enslaved woman with her two children, was being taken from North Carolina uh, to New York by her, her master, and then they were going to travel overseas to his diplomatic post. And on Penn's Landing, she was liberated by some Philadelphia abolitionists. And this was quite an important event. It, re it resulted in a uh, precedent-setting court case and will be um, uh, celebrated and, and honored on July 18th with this uh, historical marker. So that's going to be the end of our month-long uh, celebration of Freedom Month. That event, or that incident, I should say, of Jane Johnson was fictionalized by Lorene Carey in her novel, The Price of a Child, which many of you probably know about and many of you, I'm sure, have read that came out uh, a few years back. And that was an incident that she learned about here in our reading room uh, while she was doing research uh, and consulting with, with Phil Lapsansky. So let me get to the introduction of our first uh, speaker. Uh, Robert Engs is, has a Ph.D. from Yale University. His research focuses on the post-bellum era, specifically the responses of freed people and white Southerners to emancipation. He has a special interest in the roles of education, religion, and missionaries in the emancipation process. His first two books, uh, Freedom's First Generation, Black, Hampton, Virginia, 1861-1890, and Educating the Disenfranchised and Disinherited, Samuel Chapman Armstrong and Hampton Institute, 1839-1893, uh, both reflect that focus. He's won a Guggenheim Fellowship, and he's also the recipient of the Lindbeck Award for Excellence in Teaching. And as I mentioned, he was uh, worked on our exhibition and symposium and book uh, back in the year 2000. And out of that also, he created something called the Crisis of the Union, which is an electronic archive of documents about the causes, conduct, and consequences of the Civil War. 
this is on the Penn University of Pennsylvania uh, website. Uh, he did this, again, by scanning a lot of the materials that appeared in this exhibition and other materials as well. And you can find that uh, wonderful resource uh, through the Penn website. So let me now introduce uh, Robert Engs. I'm really uh, pleased to be here. Uh, in John's preliminary introduction, he referred to me as uh, Professor Emeritus. Uh, actually, it's um, 11 more days. <laughs> I'm not counting. And I think I carried out my, my last official duty uh, yesterday at a board of trustees meeting, so I guess I really am a, a free man. Uh, this is an appropriate form for doing something that uh, uh, I've wanted to do for a while. Uh, the introduction of my, uh, the title of, of, of my paper is a little bit off. Um, I'm going to tell you about the Great American Slave Rebellion, but what I want to talk about this evening is a slightly different topic, which is uh, who freed the slaves and does it matter? And what I'm sharing with you is what I call an adventure and the politics of race and, and history. Now, 22 years ago, last, last February, I presented a somewhat, I thought, whimsical paper at the University of Georgia entitled The Great American Depression, and it's, I'm sorry, The Great American Slave Rebellion and, and its Consequences. Uh, this talk this evening will be about the consequences of that presentation. My sense is that most historians of the Civil War now accept um, the notion that African-American slaves were instrumental in their own emancipation. But they still resist the intellectual lineage of that interpretation and its implications for the larger story of American history. I wasn't offering back in 1987 an entirely new interpretation Rather, I was building upon the distinguished scholarship of such uh, past scholars uh, uh, who, who, had, who had been scorned by the historical establishment, most notably W.B. Du Bois, uh, but also Herbert Aptheker and Vincent Harding. Their radical politics has allowed the profession to diminish their historical vision. To do otherwise would force scholars and students to confront one of the one of, one of the most egregious historical frauds ever committed. By ignoring African Americans' central role in their own emancipation, and equally important, in the preservation of white America's treasured union, conventional historians um, have yet again denied the reality of a biracial, at minimum, America. Still worse, they've thereby ignored uh, the damage that the Lincoln the Emancipator myth has caused for the understanding of our, of our past. So this talk will explore the contemporary politics of a relatively straightforward yet still passionately debated event that transformed America, emancipation, the end of slavery. As I said, it began 22 years ago, February 13, uh, 1987, in Athens, Georgia. My thesis was that um, the extendencies of war, not Abraham Lincoln, freed the slaves. 
and that, more basically, the slaves freed themselves through non-cooperation on the plantation, through offering their labor to uh, union forces and denying it to their owners, uh, and through their participation in the actual fighting as union soldiers and sailors. My, my audience was at first uh, startled, but seemed to warm up to my, my argument. Only a couple of uh, neo-Confederates walked out in protest, although now, given what's happened to me, they may have been pro-unionists who walked out in protest. Um, and in any case, my, my host, William McFeely, felt there was no need to rush me out of town on a new Underground Railroad to protect me. <laughs> now, indeed, while I may have been the first to coin the, the phrase Great American Slave Rebellion, I hardly thought of my, of my idea as, as original. Instead, I thought of myself as building on the scholarship that had been around for a long time. The notion of black central role in their own emancipation had been po posited in Du Bois' Black Reconstruction in the 1930s. George Washington Williams, even earlier, had portrayed the role of black soldiers uh, in, in, in the Civil War. Herbert Aptheker in American uh, Negro Slave Revolts uh, controversially argued uh, for a long tradition of black slave resistance in his publications in the 1940s. Then more recently, Vincent Harding in There is a River uh, portrayed black actions in the Civil War as the culmination of a long struggle for, for freedom. Since the 1960s, uh, a number of memoirs and monographs about black troops in the Civil War have been uh, republished or written. Additionally, books, including my own Freedom's First Generation that John mentioned, have traced the resistance of, uh, of slaves and free blacks during the war in various crucial locations like Tidewater, Virginia, the Sea Islands of South Carolina, and New Orleans. All of this suggests, suggested that, that this notion of black participation in their emancipation had become a recognized part of the canon. There was resistance in some circles of, of scholars, um, uh, and that resistance caused me considerable befuddlement, especially when you hear who some of the people were. Ultimately, I realized it wasn't so much the evidence that was being disputed as it was the implications for the historical discipline. In my paper, I argued the, the best way to understand the rebellion and its consequences was to ask the same four questions raised by white Americans, North and South, uh, as the war broke out. Would the slaves rebel? Did they want to be free? Would they fight for their freedom? And would they know what to do with their freedom if they had it? Now, the answer to all four of these questions is yes, but not necessarily in the way that whites might have expected. As to the first question, would they rebel? The answer can be found in an observation by Mary Boykin Chestnut, the famed uh, Southern diarist, in 1862, while on one of her plantations in Alabama, she wrote, Dick, the butler here, reminds me that when we were children, I taught him to read as soon as I could read myself. But he won't look at me now. He looks over my head. He scents freedom in the air. He is the first Negro I have felt a change in. They go about in their black masks, not a ripple or an emotion showing. Yet on all other subjects except the war, they are the most excitable of all races. Now, Gyps, now Dick might very well make a very respectable Egyptian sphinx, 
so inscrutably silent is he. Now, in that passage, Mrs. Chestnut showed that she knew something that most of her fellow slave owners refused to admit, and that most northerners, early on in the war at least, didn't understand. And what they didn't understand is that the slaves knew that the war was about their freedom. But they were both shrewd and cautious. They wouldn't rebel in the way that Turner had, or that Gabriel and, and Vasey had, had plotted to do. They knew the penalties that such rebels, and many innocent slaves along with them, uh, paid for those, those attempts. In short, the slaves considered their, their odds. The slaves weren't suicidal. To rebel on their own was hopeless. Whites were too powerful. But if southern whites had a powerful outside enemy, all bets were off. The odds would be changed. 1861 to 65 seemed like such a time. And the black slaves, like rebels everywhere, uh, bided their time until their revolt could succeed. Meanwhile, through desertion and non-cooperation, uh, the slave did much to make the southern economy unworkable long before Union armies triumphed. The fact is, the South quickly learned that it had a black fifth column in its midst, providing aid and comfort to the enemy. At the beginning of the war, young Southern officers uh, often took their body servants uh, with them to the front to do their cooking and cleaning. That custom didn't even last the first summer of the war. The servants deserted at first opportunity and provided excellent intelligence to Union forces about the, disp the, the, the disposition of rebel forces. Well, the second question preoccupying white America, North and South, was, did the slaves want freedom? When reflected upon, you know, that, that the reality of that concern offers a kind of appalling insight into racial attitudes of mid-19th century white Americans. It implied that slaves were some sort of subhuman species lacking the instinct of those humans who were white. Of course slaves wanted to be free. All people want to be free. Slaves were people. Indeed, many ancestors of uh, blacks in slavery in 1861 had joined with, with whites to achieve freedom for their country in the American Revolution. So, slaves wanted their freedom so long as they could get it without mostly getting themselves killed in the process, as happened with Nat Turner's rebels. Beginning in 1861 and continuing throughout the war, Slaves, never permitted to cast a ballot uh, like, like white men, voted on the question of slavery with their feet. Whenever the proximity of Union troops made a successful escape possible, slaves abandoned their plantations by the dozens, even the hundreds. And since we're talking about Virginia a bit this, this evening, I thought I'd, I'd choose an example of how that process worked from, from a, a, a Virginian. The dramatic consequence of slaves choosing freedom and, see, and seizing it themselves can be seen um, in the, the record of the final days of Eben Ruffin's plantations near Petersburg, Virginia. And I've taken these excerpts out of his, his plantation diary. May 24, strong proof of the presence of the enemy this morning. Eight of my men left last night and went off to the enemy, generally young and likely. Of them, one was my carriage driver, one the houseboy, 
and one a young carpenter whose apprenticeship ended last Christmas and who had just returned. And just to pause here, if you take a look at, the, at who those people were, so much for the notion of the loyal house slaves, um, and so much for the truth of Frederick Douglass' statement that if you educate them, all they want is more freedom, not better slavery. Continuing. Monday, uh, June 9th, another heavy stampede last night of Negroes, six men, six women, and two children. Wednesday, June 18, 21 more Negroes went off last night. June 21st, Saturday, two more last night. Sunday, June 22nd, 21 went off last night. And then on May, and then on Monday, June 23, carried all others to Petersburg, 59 women and children. Tuesday, June 24th, sold 24 with, oh, sorry, sold 29 women and children for $11,000, left the rest for Mr. with Mr. Raylan for safekeeping. Wednesday, June 25th, all farming operations come to a halt on Saturday. The wheat crop will be lost. 119 of my best Negroes have escaped this place. Sold 50 sheep for $400, 15 cattle for 882. Shall sell everything I can and move my family to a place of safety. That's how a plantation dies. As to the third question, would they fight? The willingness of 180,000 black soldiers and 20,000 black sailors uh, emphatically answered that question. Equally, if not more important, as Ira Berlin has suggested to me, were the 500,000 black laborers who did everything for the Union Army from digging latrines to, uh, to being their teamsters, barrel makers, and fortification builders. Without them, a half a million more northern men would have been needed to do these services. Nothing near that number could have been prescripted without the collapse of the Union war effort. Consider the dilemma that this reality causes or caused for white Americans then and continues to cause. The war cannot be won without the aid of the blacks. They were prepared to seize their freedom. If they were prepared to take up guns and kill their masters in order to achieve it, what else might they also be prepared to do? So this black initiative had to be short-circuited. And it was from that daunting necessity that we've inherited the fiction about the Emancipation Proclamation and the origins of the, myths, of the myth about Massa Lincoln freeing the slaves. The slaves were going to be free if the North won the war. Far better to persuade them that white America, personified in Abraham Lincoln, had given them their freedom than allowing them to realize the empowerment that their taking of it implied. The poor, uneducated freedmen fell for that masterful propaganda stroke, but then again, most of the rest of us have also fallen for it, black and white, for nearly a century and a half. I think it was my diminution of Lincoln's role in revelation that large numbers of American historians had been lying to us and to themselves that upset my critics. Not realizing I was traversing a minefield, I refined and delivered the Great American Slave Rebellion lecture at several venues, north and south, usually to high compliments. Then in 1992, I was invited to contribute an essay to yet one more volume on why the South lost the war or why the North won the war. This one was to be published by Oxford Press and edited by Gabor Borat, head of the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg. 
this seemed like a great opportunity to give the Great American Slave Rebellion uh, broader le readership, and I'd been trying to get Oxford Press to publish my stuff for some years. It can be seen or said from what follows that at least I have learned why Oxford keeps turning me down. The plan was for each of these essays to be delivered at the annual Gettysburg Civil War Institute, then to be collected into a volume with an introduction by Professor Borat. Each of us was paid a handsome sum in advance in lieu of, of royalties. When I arrived, I received an urgent call from, from Borat. He met with me to explain that my essay was completely unacceptable and would have to be rewritten to be included in the volume. He said that Oxford would never publish such an unorthodox and revisionist piece. I appealed to my old mentor and a chief contributor to, to, to the volume, Jim McPherson, who was my professor at, at Princeton when I was there. Indeed, many of my specific ideas and figures were derived from McPherson's own works. But to my dismay, he largely agreed with Borat. Um, Self-emancipation, they sniffed. Now, certainly my argument complicated the neat picture of emancipation from a generation ago and shook Lincoln's pedestal a tad. But this was the 1990s. Surely we were ready to move past, own up to past error, and, and move on. Well, maybe I was. Uh, they weren't. I delivered my, my, my paper to the Institute to a very tepid response from the participants. Uh, there is, by the way, uh, probably no, no more traditionalist in audience than those who participate at the Civil War Institute in Gettysburg. I think I actually increased the black participation there by 100% just by giving my paper. <laughs> well, I, I, I refused to alter my paper because I already had the check. Uh, and, and they refused to publish it. Uh, so I took my check and drove home to Philadelphia. Um, Morit got uh, Joseph Glathar to write a safe article on black soldiers and their white officers during the war. So at least the volume had something um, in it about blacks, if not written by a black scholar. I think the whole incident speaks to that final question about blacks that white Americans were asking about black Americans as the Civil War raged. Will they know what to do with their freedom if they have it? Uh, actually, I think... Um, there was an equally important but unspoken corollary to that question, which was, if they, as I say, the blacks, know what to do with it, are we, whites, prepared to let them do so? And the answer, of course, was a resounding no. Their freedom so grudgingly acknowledged because if it had been, in fact, seized and was necessary for the survival of the Union, was undermined and withdrawn over the next half century. And even today, is quite tenuous for many, despite the color of the current resident in the White House. A decade ago, black scholars and unorthodox scholars of African-American subjects were still uh, often ignored and their work seldom recognized, especially if they challenged the prevailing self-congratulatory interpretations of major scholars. In 1993, um, in the 1993 spring meeting, of the OAH, a rump session was added, um, purportedly organized by the board board, entitled, Who Freed the Slaves? My old professor, and I thought friend, Jim McPherson, took the side of the traditionalists, arguing that emancipation could not have happened without Lincoln and Northern victory. The truth is, I've never denied that. 
but I've always insisted that the slaves began liberating themselves before Mr. Lincoln got persuaded to do so as well, and that the Union couldn't have won the war without the slaves' help. My old friend Ira Berlin took the side of the so-called self-emancipationists. Um, McPherson quoted from my paper, Berlin couldn't because he hadn't seen it. Oxford and Borat declined to publish it or to show it to other people, except to people who were at the, um, at the institute. The fact is, I found out about all this later. I hadn't been invited. Uh, an issue of the journal Reconstruction uh, later published the exchange between McPherson and uh, Berlin, which you can look at if you're interested. The evidence that something much more complicated than the emancipation myth and involving actions of black slaves as well as white uh, liberators is, is overwhelming. Today, most serious scholars have begun inserting into their texts references to revolution or revolutionary change when they refer to the emancipation process. But they aren't yet willing to concede the centrality of black actions needed for union victory. And along with them doing that, I would like a couple of footnotes or at least some acknowledgments about my role in all this. But that's not likely to happen. Perhaps non-traditional and or non-white scholars should be satisfied with knowing that they've forced the canon to change. If ever so slowly, 150 years is a long time from the event to these current corrections. Realistic, realistically, however, one can't expect substantive change until mainstream American historians are deprived of hegemony over telling of their own story, just as they have deprived that, denied that privilege to so many American minorities and to peoples around the world. I think that that process of change is well begun. It's up to folks like us on occasions like this to nudge it along the way. Thank you. So Elizabeth Varon, uh, like Professor Engs, also has her PhD from Yale University. She's a specialist in the Civil War era and 19th century South. He, she's the author of We Mean to Be Counted, White Women and Politics in Antebellum, Virginia, which won the Lerner Scott Prize of the American Historical Association, and Southern Lady, Yankee Spy, the true story of Elizabeth Van Lew, a Union agent in the heart of the Confederacy, uh, which also won several prizes. Her newest book is Disunion, The Coming of the American Civil War, 1789 to 1859, which is volume one of the Littlefield History of the Civil War series. Professor Varon is a participant in the Organization of American Historians Distinguished Lecturer Series, and she's now at work on two new projects. Uh, she's working on an article on Robert E. Lee's pre-war politics and a book project on William Still and Peter Still, two brothers who were separated by slavery and reunited uh, by the Underground Railroad. So, Elizabeth Varon. Thank you. Are we okay with the technical aspects here? Terrific. Um, I'm going to offer some thoughts that I think will uh, sync up in interesting ways with what Professor Engs has just told us, and I'll look forward to your, your comments uh, and uh, feedback when we're all done. In, in the fall of 1935, uh, the Chicago Defender, America's most influential black newspaper, ran a piece entitled Emancipation Day. When is it? That was the title of the piece. The piece began with a description of a Juneteenth celebration in Texas. 
an event that featured a band, a parade, a baseball game, and a big dance. But the author of the piece, Roberta Clay, then moved on to contextualize Juneteenth, among the many other dates commemorating the freeing of the slaves, as she put it. Those dates included, uh, it won't surprise us to learn, January 1st, which marked the Emancipation Proclamation itself, and August 1st, which marked the uh, abolition of slavery in the British Empire. Among the dates, 11 in all, that Clay identified as Freedom Days for African Americans was April 9th. And that, of course, is the day that Robert E. Lee surrendered to U.S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia in 1865. African Americans who celebrated that date, Clay observed in this article, did so in recognition of the fact that only Confederate defeat could make real and secure the promises of emancipation. Now, in highlighting the, the prominent place of April 9th among Black Freedom Days, Clay acknowledged a powerful tradition among African Americans, a strong belief that Lee's defeat marked the end of slavery. And today I'll try to elucidate how that belief took shape and also why it's faded. The, the enshrinement of Appomattox as an Emancipation Day rested on three interconnected claims. One was that the Union Army's victory over Lee dramatized black agency and heroism in the defeat of the Confederacy. A second was that the Virginia setting of Lee's surrender gave it special meaning for African Americans. And a third theme was that the magnanimous terms of surrender which Grant offered to Lee had profound implications for race relations. And I'll address these three claims in turn and then offer some thoughts on how we might connect Appomattox, which is a, a tradition that reflects the experiences of African Americans in the Eastern theater of the war with Juneteenth, which is a, a sort of celebratory tradition that reflects blacks' experiences in the southwestern or trans-Mississippi theater of the war. These are two regional traditions that come, come together in interesting ways. So let me begin uh, by talking about the role of African-American soldiers in Lee's surrender. They played an instrumental and indeed decisive part. Countless African-American commentators in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, including veterans, ministers, politicians, reformers, editors, and historians, celebrated Appomattox as the apogee of black military heroism. They were keenly aware of and eager to call the nation's attention to the fact that seven different regiments of the United States colored troops participated in the Appomattox campaign and were present at the surrender. And this, I think, needless to say, is something most Americans don't know. The Appomattox campaign began in earnest in late March of 1865 as two powerful Union armies, the Army of the Potomac and the Army of the James, broke Lee's siege line and then proceeded in the days that followed to capture Petersburg and then Richmond itself. With Lee's troops pouring out of these conquered cities and heading west, the race was on. Grant's forces, including the United States Colored Troops regiments of the, armies of the uh, Army of the James, were in hot pursuit of Lee, determined to cut off his retreat before he could turn south and head to North Carolina for his planned rendezvous with Confederate General Joe Johnston. For a week in this famous campaign, the armies maneuvered, and in each of the sporadic clashes along the way as Lee fled west uh, across central Virginia, left Lee's army more tattered. By the time Lee reached Appomattox Courthouse on April 8th, it was clear that he was caught in a vice by the surrounding Federals. But he tried in one last desperate gambit on the morning of April 9th, 1865, to fight his way out, to break through the vice so he could find Johnson in North Carolina and fight on. In that last final battle of his fabled Army of Northern Virginia, Lee found that the only remaining road south, the Richmond Lynchburg Stage Road, was blocked by the bristling bayonets and gleaming musket barrels of black soldiers in blue. 
the 29th, 31st, and 116th Regiments of the United States Colored Troops blocked the way. These troops, with four other black regiments waiting in the wings, fought back the advancing Confederates and left Lee no choice but to surrender. So <coughs> decisive in this, this final moment. The seven black regiments at Appomattox numbered about 2,000 men in all, uh, and they were a microcosm of black life in America. They included ex-slaves trained at Kentucky's Camp Nelson and free blacks trained here at Philadelphia's Camp William Penn soldiers. They included men who would become race leaders in the post-war era, such as the renowned historian George Washington Williams, whom Professor Engs quoted, the influential AME minister William Yoakum, South Carolina judge and legislator William Whipper, and Baptist editor William J. Simmons, who was the journalistic mentor to none other than Ida B. Wells. These men were in those black regiments present at that moment of Lee's surrender. And we're only just beginning to recover the stories of still others, more obscure, who filled out the ranks. Men such as William H. Costley, whose mother Nance had been freed in an 1841 Illinois court case argued by a young upcoming lawyer named Abraham Lincoln. Now, not surprisingly, black soldiers and those civilians who had championed their enlistment quickly seized on the USCT's critical role in the surrender of Lee as a point of pride and of vindication. As William McCausland of the 29th Regiment USCT put it in a May 1865 letter, quote, we the colored soldiers have fairly won our rights by loyalty and bravery, unquote. He was echoed by a veteran of the 41st USCT, who in a June 1865 letter to the Christian Recorder noted proudly that black troops had displayed remarkable courage in the capturing of Lee's army. Thomas Morris Chester, the black correspondent embedded with the Army of the James, who's left us his dispatches, too reveled in the fact that black regiments had participated in the vigorous campaign that, as he put it, gave Lee's forces as trophies to the Union Army. The Confederate capitulation at Appomattox was especially sweet, he noted, because it was a rebuke to the haughty elite of the Old Dominion, the self-styled FFVs, or First Families of Virginia, as these uh, whites like to call themselves, whom Chester, after the surrender, wryly dubbed the Fleet-Footed Virginians. <laughs> For our purposes here today, the, the key point is that leading black opinion makers would continue in the post-war decades and well into the 20th century to emphasize the special symbolism of African-Americans' role in bringing down Lee's army. George Washington Williams, the most eminent black historian of the era, himself a veteran of the Appomattox campaign, he was there, led the way. In his landmark 1883 History of the Negro Race in America, he proudly noted that at Appomattox, in, quote, the last hour of the slaveholders' rebellion, unquote, the brilliant fighting of black troops conquered the swaggering insolence and lofty confidence of the South, unquote. Another USCT veteran, Congressional Medal of Honor recipient Christian A. Fleetwood, likewise celebrated the role of African-American troops in the war's climactic campaign, observing in 1895 that black troops were, quote, one of the strong fingers upon the mighty hand that grasped the giant's throat at Petersburg and never flexed until the breath went out at Appomattox. Oftentimes, this argument took the form of an epigram, uh, an oft-repeated phrase in writings by these uh, black opinion makers that, quote, the last guns fired at Lee's army were in the hands of Negro soldiers, unquote. Now, some black commentators stated explicitly what is implicit in all of these passages about military valor, and that is that Lee's defeat marked a symbolic end of slavery. 
giving a speech on the anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation in 1888, the Reverend E.K. Love, a Georgia Baptist, began by reminding his listeners that it was at Appomattox, quote, amidst the awful clash of arms that the child of liberty was born, and born hard, he said. The war itself was the crimson stream that washed away the stain of slavery. Another commentator, William Walker, a former Virginia slave, chose Im images of death rather than birth to make the same point. He wrote, and I quote, Servitude was a corpse wrapped in the rebels' fallen stars and broken bars for a shroud and buried at Appomattox, as he wrote in 1892. An especially poignant account comes from the pen of Wesley John Gaines, who in his 1897 book, The Negro and the White Man, describes the moment he first heard the tidings of uh, uh, liberty to the captive. He writes, quote, I was plowing in the fields of southern Georgia. Suddenly the news was announced that the war had ended and slavery was dead. The last battle had been fought, and the tragedy that closed at Appomattox had left the tyrant who had reigned for centuries slain upon the gory field. In a moment, the pent-up tears flooded my cheeks, and the psalm of thanksgiving arose to my lips. Oh, the rapture of that hour, learning Lee's defeat. Such images of the death of slavery and the birth of freedom persisted in black thought. In 1919, the eminent sociologist Kelly Miller would claim that the central doctrine of slavery, what he called the right of the strong to own the weak, was, quote, shot to death at Appomattox, unquote. Again, the recurring theme that the defeat of Lee and of the Confederate military uh, had the, the promise of securing freedom. The idea that the Federal Army's defeat of Lee brought emancipation had particularly keen resonance for Virginia blacks. The Reverend Peter Randolph's 1893 autobiography from Slave Cabin to Pulpit described Lee's surrender as the day on which the slaves in his native Virginia became free. And he notes that by congregating where Union soldiers in this victorious army were quartered, these slaves could at last see what freedom meant, as he put it. None other than Booker T. Washington, in his classic autobiography, Up From Slavery, remembers how when the war closed, the day of freedom came to southwestern Virginia. The sight of Confederate soldiers who had deserted Lee's army or been paroled by Grant uh, dramatized for slaves like Washington as much as a U.S. officer's belated reading of the Emancipation Proclamation did that the April surrender had brought the long-awaited moment of deliverance from the Confederates. Now, the fact that the drama of Lee's defeat had played out in Virginia had special symbolic significance far beyond the borders of that state, and indeed long after the moment of liberation. The historian Joseph T. Wilson, himself a veteran of the 54th Massachusetts famous Glory Regiment, explained in his pioneering 1887 history, The Black Phalanx, that only after U.S. CT soldiers had proven their mettle elsewhere were they allowed to finally fight in the critical Virginia theater against Lee's army the hope and pride of the Confederacy, as he put it, uh, the chance to prove themselves in the most important theater. And in his view, black troops' success in the Old Dominion against these FFVs was their crowning glory. They had taken down the Confederacy's hope and pride. Moreover, Appomattox was aligned in African-American commentary with another great Virginia battle, the triumph of the Continental Army at Yorktown. The glorious flag made independent at Yorktown was purged of its greatest stain at Appomattox, George Washington Ellis declared in a Fourth of July address in the 1890s. This connection lingered. As late as 1931, the Chicago Defender ran an article celebrating the two great surrenders in Virginia. 
Quote, one was that of majesty to independence, the other of slavery to freedom. Yorktown was the beginning of the nation. Appomattox saw it fixed to divine purpose, unquote. For others, the Virginia setting of the surrender mattered not because the state was the birthplace of the revolution, but instead because it was the birthplace of slavery itself. Roscoe Simmons, a columnist for the Chicago Defender, reminded his readers in 1924 that, quote, slavery began in Virginia, and fittingly, it ended in Virginia with Lee's capitulation. This made Appomattox, in his view, black's place of salvation, as he put it. Now, black remembrance of Appomattox as a freedom day incorporated not only themes of black heroism and liberation, but also of clemency, which was the keynote of Grant's surrender terms to Lee. Grant famously and sort of iconic in an iconic scene in American history, in accordance with Lincoln's dictum of malice towards none, had extended a hand of leniency to the prostrate rebel army at Appomattox. He paroled Lee's troops, set them free to go home on the sole condition that they would never again take up arms against the United States. And Lee, for his part, accepted Grant's terms and rejected the calls of some of the less temperate Confederate leaders uh, for the South to prolong the conflict as a guerrilla war. Now, interestingly, the sorts of African-American opinion makers I've been quoting read into the very terms of the surrender, Grant's and Lee's comportment at Appomattox, a civil rights message. They wanted to draw and extract from that surrender a civil rights message. And that message for them was an inherent promise of interracial reconciliation. And two distinct rhetorical strategies emerged for commemorating the terms of the surrender. One strategy was to emphasize the ways in which the promise of Appomattox, the promise of interracial reconciliation on terms of equality, that's how they interpreted it, uh, how that promise had been fulfilled or might still be fulfilled. But a second way, and I'll, I'll address this too, was to lament that the promise of interracial reconciliation that that surrender represented had been broken, and then to cast shame on those who had broken it. So let me say a few words to illustrate these two modes. In the first hopeful mode, advocates of civil rights depicted the freed people, and black soldiers in particular, as agents of reunion, of this sort of new era in race relations. George Washington Williams' 1888 History of the Negro Troops in the War of the Rebellion praised black soldiers for treating the vanquished Confederates in the fields of Appomattox with, as he put it, quote, quiet dignity and Christian humility, unquote. And again, he was, he was there. He wrote, quote, after the Confederate army had been paroled, the Negro troops cheerfully and cordially divided their rations with the late enemy and welcomed them at their campfires on the march back to Petersburg. The sweet gospel of forgiveness was expressed in the Negro soldiers' intercourse with ex-rebel soldiers who freely mingled with the black conquerors. It was a spectacle of magnanimity never before witnessed, unquote. Now, you might be tempted to think, well, this was a, a sort of... Uh, he was, he was capitulating to a sort of white view of, of, of the, the meaning of this uh, reunion of, 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 of Grant and Lee and, and myths about the fraternization of the soldiers or that he was taking a conciliationist standpoint. But if you think about it in, in, in the context of the kinds of pro-slavery arguments that had been made for hundreds of years that uh, 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 blacks, if freed, would turn on their masters in vengeance and that race war and, and, and rebellion would be the consequence of freedom, what Williams was saying was really quite radical. He was, he was disassociating um, himself and the other troops from these images of vengeance and, and arraying them in defiance of long-standing white prejudice with the forces of civilization and order and progress as people in the 19th century defined them. 
John Wesley Cromwell, a Virginia-born educator and editor of the People's Advocate, struck a similar note when he observed, quote, that the men who attained their journey with the surrender at Appomattox had greater faith in the possibility of equality than did the earlier generation from the period when Nat Turner's blows shook the country from center to circumference, unquote. Again, uh, here he was uh, trying to counter the old pro-slavery argument that freedom would bring race war uh, and to argue something very different that uh, 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 African Americans would act as agents uh, of of magnanimity uh, and of healing. The idea that Appomattox could symbolize and herald interracial reconciliation survived into the 20th century. It was the premise behind the establishment in Chicago in 1900 of an African-American civic organization called the Appomattox Club, and this would emerge as a prominent political vehicle for the city's black leadership. Deeming Lee's surrender an epoch-making event, this Appomattox Club held an annual monster celebration, as they put it, to mark the April 9th anniversary and to renew the hope, and here I'm quoting from their um, uh, charter, that millions of white and black men might bridge the chasm of political, social, and economic prejudice and in universal brotherhood shake hands as did Grant and Lee, unquote. Here again, they're taking a moment that Uh, one might be tempted to see only as a moment of white reconciliation and reunion and reading into it a civil rights message, saying that that moment can symbolize the promise of interracial reconciliation. Now, a second rhetorical strategy to contrast to the approach I've just described confronted and tried to make sense of the dramatic deterioration of race relations in the post-war period. And this is an interpretive mode uh, in which African-American commentators make the following argument. While Grant and Lee had achieved at Appomattox a kind of meeting of the minds, a balance of mercy on Grant's part and contrition on Lee's part, those leaders had been betrayed by Andrew Johnson and by the unreconstructed rebels who used violence to reclaim control of the South. Uh, this, uh, this is, a, again, a sort of second argument that confronts this tragic course of events. Lamenting this, this course of events, African-American commentators in this interpretive mode defended Grant as a martyr champion of civil rights and saw his death in 1885 as a terrible blow to the cause of progress. So in this mode, Lee and Grant aren't sort of enduring symbols of the hope of reconciliation, but Grant's passing is, is, a, is a terrible blow to progress and, a, and, a, and a, the beginning of an explanation uh, as to why the promise of Appomattox has gone unfulfilled. A eulogy entitled The Hero of Appomattox, published by the Christian Recorder in 1885, praised not only Grant's military genius, but also his devotion to personal liberty and his intense love of fair play, the same qualities that made the Union general generous in victory, made him as president a champion of social justice. Now, African-American writers who saw in Appomattox a promise betrayed, at times even made symbolic use of Lee himself, and this was... This was uh, surprising to me to find these following examples. For example, a 1926 article in the New York Amsterdam News held up Robert E. Lee as an opponent of vigilante violence who had purportedly prevented lynchings while president of Washington College in Virginia and whose example the new generation of white Southern leaders had willfully refused to follow. Three years later, in 1929, the NAACP leader Walter Francis White, in his own history of lynching, condemned those white Southerners who, as he put it, instead of listening to the sound advice of such men as General Robert E. Lee to accept the verdict of Appomattox, unquote, had chosen instead to unleash a reign of Klan terror on the South. 
In other words, images of Grant's generosity and of Lee's stoic acceptance of the new order could be deployed to cast shame on the opponents of civil rights, on people who have betrayed that promise of uh, interracial reconciliation which the surrender uh, had, had symbolized. Now, to sum up, Appomattox has had deep resonance and great political utility as a symbolic site of remembrance for African Americans, and a belief in the sacredness of Appomattox persisted into the 1940s. Indeed, in 1943, a proclamation by the Illinois General Assembly, introduced by black assemblyman Charles J. Jenkins, designated April 9th as a holiday in the state to be observed as Freedom Day. So what became of this tradition? Why does Appomattox no longer loom large as a Freedom Day? I'll conclude with a few uh, musings about this, which I, I think, uh, as you'll see, will connect to what we've uh, just heard from Professor Engs. I've only just begun my own research on this question. I'll give you a few preliminary thoughts. It seems clear that Appomattox faded as a Freedom Day as part of a process by which the lost cause mythology, a set of ideas, a framework uh, that celebrated the Confederacy, came to dominate American culture. And this story of how this process unfolded is described so eloquently by David Blight and many others. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, apologists for the Confederacy, defenders of the Confederacy, popularized the view that the war was an exercise in manly heroism by white soldiers on both sides. In this view, uh, the Confederate cause, though lost, was noble and, wor and worthy of admiration, and the war itself was a demonstration of American exceptionalism, of the supreme uh, uh, and surpassing bravery of white Americans on both sides, gray and blue. Now, Appomattox played a very important function in that particular mythic view of the war, and those intent on romanticizing the Confederacy had their own distinctive interpretation of the surrender. And needless to say, in their interpretation, there were no black heroes and no liberation from tyranny and no promise of interracial reconciliation. Instead, the lost cause ideologues, such as the Confederate General John B. Gordon, took Grant's surrender terms and twisted it to their, own, to their own purposes. They interpreted a key line in Grant's surrender terms, the stipulation that paroled Confederate soldiers would not be disturbed by the U.S. authorities as a promise that although slavery was defunct, the racial caste system would remain undisturbed. This was, for, for Gordon and the Lost Cause folks, that was the promise of Appomattox, that the soldiers could go home to a world as, as close to the world that they left behind as possible. Yes, slavery was dead, but, but the, the, the racial caste system could remain intact. And in the view of men like Gordon, the promise of Appomattox had been broken not by Andrew Johnson and not by... Uh, uh, the Klan and so on, the promise of Appomattox had been broken by the radical Republicans who had um, uh, uh, demanded that Southern society really change, and that promise had been restored by the so-called redeemers of the white South who brought the ex-Confederates back to power. White supremacists, in effect, seized Appomattox as a symbolic moment and held it hostage. They say the surrender means what we want it to mean. And, and, and in our view, uh, it is, a, it is a, uh, a, a justification for a kind of retrenchment and a rolling back of progress. And we can read all of the sorts of African-American rhetoric that I've quoted as a collective effort in a way to ransom that captive, to say Appomattox is our moment of triumph, not yours. But as the lost cause mythology gained ascendance, 
And as that collective effort seemed increasingly futile, an alternative, much more critical interpretation of the surrender gained currency among black opinion makers. And this was a view that the North had conceded too much on April 9th, and that Lee, rather than uh, a symbol of Southern resignation, should be seen as a symbol of Southern defiance, and indeed as the true victor at Appomattox. And I'll close with a few examples. Two will have to suffice to stand in for many others. In 1912, with the Lost Cause cult at a peak of popularity, an article in another influential black paper, the Pittsburgh Courier, lamented that, quote, Southern thought is conquering the entire country on the race question, unquote. The article quoted a poem called Appomattox by the black poet Charles Dinkins. Dinkins wrote, when falls the sword, the better way becomes the soldier's part to play. The South will whip the North someday with ink and a pen. Now, what he was referring to was the way that Southern apologists, through their myth-making, would reestablish a political and cultural dominance over the country. Second example. In 1939, when Marian Anderson was refused the opportunity to sing at Constitution Hall, the same paper, The Courier, protested with an article entitled, pointedly, Who Won the Civil War? The author's article wrote, For years now, we have been taught to celebrate the surrender of Lee at Appomattox on April 9, 1865. But when Miss Anderson complains that she can sing in every capital in the world, except the capital of her own country, one could be pardoned for wondering whether it was General Grant who surrendered to General Lee at Appomattox Courthouse, unquote. In other words, from this perspective, it seems that all of the promise uh, had faded and, and, and uh, been rolled back, and indeed that the Union had uh, not won at all. As Appomattox faded from view as a Freedom Day, Juneteenth emerged as the most important festive marker of emancipation. And I don't think there's a direct causal relationship between these two developments, but I do think that by reconsidering this Appomattox legacy, we can get insight into why Juneteenth is such a compelling and inspirational day. Unlike Appomattox, Juneteenth has not been claimed and held hostage by Confederate apologists. It hasn't been incorporated into the Lost Cause mythology. There's no way to read General Gordon Granger's June 19, 1865 Declaration of Emancipation in Texas as a story of white Southern heroism or resurgence the way that the Appomattox story has been read. At the same time, Juneteenth is a historical moment share some of the symbolic power for the freedom struggle of Appomattox. I should note there's a tangible connection between the two Freedom Days. The seven USCT regiments that fought at Appomattox that were there, so decisive in Lee's defeat, were sent a month later, in May of 1865, to Texas, both to roust out the last pockets of Confederate troops there and also to guard against possible incursions uh, by the puppet government that the French had set up in Mexico. Now, these troops were not attached to Granger's Corps as he entered Galveston on June 19th. They were sent to points farther south on the Gulf Coast. But they were part of the Union's Army of Liberation, and they surely helped to spread the word of freedom in the Lone Star State. So they're quite literally part of that Juneteenth story. But there are other connections we might make between Appomattox and Juneteenth. Both moments, coming as they did long after the Emancipation Proclamation, speak to the reality of slaveholder treachery and of freedom deferred. Both moments signify the decisive role of the Union Army, and especially of African-American troops in the Union Army, in actuating the abolition of slavery. Finally, both days, April 9 and June 19, together remind us that emancipation was not an event, but a process, and that our Freedom Days are worth not only remembering, but fighting for. Thank you.
Thank you, Professor Brown. Our third speaker is Randall Miller, uh, who has a PhD from Ohio State University, and he's the William Dirk Warren Class of 1950 Sesquicentennial Chair and Professor of History at St. Joe's, where he's been teaching since 1972. He's the author or editor of over 20 books treating such subjects as slavery and race, immigrant and ethnic history, the American South, the Civil War era, popular culture, urban affairs, and American diaries. And you've probably also heard him on the radio occasionally as a political commentator during election seasons and at other times. Relative to today's forum, he's best known for his award-winning book, Dear Master, Letters of a Slave Family. Among his current projects, he's completing a book on the northern home front during the Civil War and editing a collection of essays on Lincoln and leadership. Randall Miller. seems like you're getting an award when you do this, doesn't it? Yeah, like a boutonniere or something like that. Okay, great, thanks. Well, um, we were talking about Freedom Days. I think I'm going to be talking about Freedom Days. I'm just going to move that sucker like that. It's okay. How's that? But uh, Freedom Days... Uh, have a character to them, rituals, and one of the things about them is they're a time not only a profession but also a confession. So I'll start with a confession. What I'm offering is really uh, going to be less particular, less probing, less provocative than the two papers you heard here before. It'll be more descriptive and analytical. It'll be more speculative and substantive. Uh, it's something that has just been rolling around in my mind, and I hope that it works. Let's see what happens. On July 5, 1852, Frederick Douglass stood before a packed hall in Rochester, New York, and gave his most famous abolitionist speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? In it, he hailed the boldness and rightness of the American revolutionary thrust toward freedom and paid due respect to the patriots of American independence. But he used the moment to score whites and America for failing to honor that sacrifice to their own sacred text, the Declaration, and the divine purpose of the New Republic. He commanded them especially to seize the moment to throw off the false past and remake the present. Douglas's problem with the 4th of July cut to the marrow of the American problem with that day of celebration and, dedication and declaration. From its inception, the 4th was a contested terrain. What obligations to the nation did different people have? Which and whose history of American independence counted? Could one separate the professed ideals of the declaration from celebrating American progress as, the, as it was going? How did slavery complicate matters? Not only black abolitionists like Douglas, but white southern secessionists agonized over such questions. For the 4th of July, by calling for an American unity, invariably called into question one's distinctiveness, whether it could be one's blackness or southernness or Catholicness or whatever. Could that day of independence function to hold a disparate and increasingly divided people together? Such a question goes to the heart of black American efforts to claim that day and then to create their own days of freedom so as to fashion a usable past and define themselves in an American context. Black's commemoration of black, African, freedom harks back to the beginning of the Republic and was from its inception always both an occasion of celebration and of dedication, once a call for community and for commitment. Such Com uh, commemoratives sprang from blacks' emerging sense of themselves as a people with a special place in history. 
They also were moments of self-reflection as to the meaning of America and their place in its promise of independence and freedom. Before the Civil War and Emancipation recast the calendar of freedom, three, the three most important freedom celebrations were New Year's Day, January 1, 1808, and after, um, commemorating the abolition of the foreign slave trade by Great Britain and the United States and, uh, and Denmark, where people want to be complete there. Also important was July 4th, which blacks would claim as their own by celebrating it on July 5th and marking the day with sermons and speeches pointing to the unfulfilled promise of the Declaration of Independence and the hypocrisy of slavery in a supposedly God-anointed Republican experiment, as Douglas would do later on. Soon enough, August 1st, 1834, British Emancipation Day, would assume primacy in the freedom commemoration calendar for free blacks anyway. To be sure, other days marking particular events carried local meaning. For example, recalling the Boston Massacre with Crispus Attucks hailed as the first American martyr for liberty, or in Boston from 1808 to 1822, Boston celebrating July 14th, the abolition of slavery in Massachusetts, or indeed others' uh, Haitian independence. But January 1, July 4, July 5, and August 1 were national celebrations. National, that is, in that free black communities across the North claimed them and used them as moments and instruments to build a collective consciousness and galvanize a collective purpose. Especially important was New Year's Day celebration, which began uh, almost simultaneously and spontaneously in Philadelphia, New York, at the African Episcopal Church in Philadelphia, and the African Zion Church in New York. And they set the pattern for Freedom Day uh, festivals thereafter. There and in smaller communities, free blacks held services of thanksgiving and praise in black churches or in public squares. The celebrations included sermons, praying, anthems, and speeches. In Philadelphia, Absalom Jones preached a sermon recounting the travails of his people and also calling for the day, January 1, to be, I'm quoting, set apart in every year as a day of public thanksgiving. Drawing on the biblical deliverance of the Jews from the Egyptian bondage, Jones insisted that blacks must not forget that past and that purpose. Let the history of the sufferings of our brethren and of their, their deliverance descend by their means to our children to the remotest generations, he said. It is significant that such commemorations emanated from black churches in free black communities. Commemorations require organization and resources. And as independent black institutions, the churches had just that. As African societies, as their name suggested, they pointed to their particular collective selves to reclaim their own history. They sustained the messages by creating a literature of commemoration so that the moment was not lost after the day. Indeed, in the almost formulaic pattern of the January 1 Freedom Day festivities, the sermons and speeches invoked the history of the work against slavery, pointed to the heroes of, the, of such struggles, and called for those free to toil tirelessly for the emancipation of their people still in bondage. Given their own emphasis upon self-discipline, such speakers also called on blacks to live abstemiously to show they were worthy of such freedom. <coughs> Excuse me. Is the brilliant Richard Newman in our audience... <coughs> receptively has noted uh, in a publication by a library company, uh, just to get a little plug in for that. Uh, these commemorations produced their own literature. By his counting, over a dozen major publications, each echoing in turn uh, the two twin, it's always two twin, twin concerns, that A, the work was not done until slavery ended and that the African-American must consider themselves the prophets of interracial harmony. 
The printed works and later visual representations of such events extended both the compass and the life of the commemorations. And then later on, you also get even uh, compositions specifically for that, and song and what have you, you could literally hum uh, in memory of the commemorations. The January 1st Freedom Day did not last as the day of independence. New York gave up, up on it in, after eight years, and Philadelphia stopped organized celebrations in 1830. To be sure, the day, January 1, would gain new force and meaning in 1863 with the Emancipation Proclamation issued that day. But the abolition of the slave trade as the basis for a Freedom Day simply lacked staying power. It wasn't part of an acknowledgment of others acting for blacks rather than blacks gaining freedom for themselves. The Thanksgiving sermons and speeches, of course, insisted that blacks must act to realize full freedom. But January 1 was as much a thanks for a gift received as a call to arms. David Wallstreicher has argued that blacks used January 1 as a way to mock the hypocrisy of July 4th, the day that essentially excluded them. But that, too, was not enough to keep it going. Interestingly, July 4th was, for a time, a day blacks also marked uh, as their own. But white violence in the early 19th century sought to force blacks from such public celebrations. In Philadelphia, on July 4th, 1805, as Gary Nash has written, Dozens of whites drove the many free blacks from the square facing Independence Hall between 5th and 6th Streets and made that space their own thereafter. This was part of a larger process of contesting over public space amid rising class, religious, and racial consciousness. Racial prescription in law was not so vigorous as it was with fists. Blacks were not welcome at events in, in places where white working class people were asserting their own claims to being American. The drawings and paintings of artists like Kimmel, etc., that presented a more inclusive image of July 4th in Philadelphia and elsewhere actually misrepresented the facts, at least for blacks. For blacks in Philadelphia, as elsewhere, the day was a time of troubles. Such troubles did not mean blacks ceded the day to whites. <coughs> Excuse me. For some free blacks, the day acquired a double meaning, not only of the promise of the American Declaration of Independence, but also one of their own their own need to assert their independence. In New York, the end of slavery on July 4, 1827, led to a commemoration of that signal moment. Several other black communities followed suit. But one special way blacks ensured the day would be theirs was by moving the celebrations to July 5th. In the 1820s and after, July 5th festivals occurred in many northern free black communities. They included the church activities, excuse me, the church-based activities of the January 1 Freedom Day commemorations, sermons and song, etc., but they also included outdoor activities such as parades and picnics, dinners, all punctuated with gun salutes and uh, robust toasts. New York Abolition Day, as it was often called, continued in some places as late as 1859. But this day did not command such widespread support to be a day of national celebration and purpose. As Mitch Cahan has written, it would take a foreign event to provide a cornerstone for something that might be a distinctive black national day of celebration and purpose. In the 18, and that happened in the 1830s, when July 5th gave way to August 1st as the principal black freedom commemoration before the Civil War. August 1, 1834, marked the emancipation of slaves in the British West Indies and throughout the empire, based on the uh, Abolition of Slavery Act of 1833. Uh, the celebrations didn't really begin until 1838. That's after the apprenticeships had ended uh, in the West Indies, when they were public festivals common throughout the British West Indies, in British Canada, and in the northern uh, United States, making this a transnational event 
that reinforced the sense of international purpose. The celebrations varied from place to place. In Canada, among the fugitives there, they, they functioned as a time of celebration of political motivation. While in the West Indies, at least initially, the celebrations were church-based and also somewhat controlled by whites who always preached on the necessity of good behavior. In the United States, amid the banquets, balls, parades, fireworks, and church services, there was a persistent drumbeat of abolition as an unfinished charge. Also significant about the August 1 commemoration was its overt political purpose and its interracial composition. White abolitionists joined with blacks to organize these events. Some blacks worried about that, uh, wanting to have the day to and for themselves. Other critics worried that such celebrations dissipated morals and uh, uh, wasted resources, especially as the size of some of these celebrations, as many as 7,000 people gathering in one, uh, pushed the events out of churches and into the public square, and brass bands and black militias seemed to be giving it too much of a martial air. But the theme of August 1 was too powerful to mute with such concerns, and it even spilled over into Fourth of July celebrations, as white and black abolitionists sought to reclaim that day is it one for universal liberty too, something they've been trying to do since the late 1790s. Uh, footnote aside, uh, July 4th was often the day uh, in northern states, the northern states chose uh, for the effective uh, beginning of abolition, so that just reinforced that idea. The success of such efforts in some communities actually contributed to white southerners disowning the national July 4th celebration as tainted as they too reimagined the definition of America and their place in it. All the black commemorative Freedom Days shared qualities that would inform later Freedom Days, Juneteenth, if you will. They addressed what W.E.B. Du Bois later termed the peculiar sensation of double consciousness, of being an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. Absalom Jones of the African Episcopal Church and that day in January 1, 1808, had said as much uh, at the original commemoration when he insisted that making freedom required a historical consciousness. Quote, it becomes us, publicly or privately, to acknowledge that an African slave, ready to perish, was our father or our grandfather. This was the root, root of black peoplehood. What today political science would term an imagined community people who share common experiences and values, though separated by time and space. July 4th serves to animate that sense of simultaneity and unity. So in Jones's and others' uh, estimation, blacks must realize their common bond. But in remarking on, even ritualizing African origins, speakers always pointed to the American context and concerns. They insisted that the American Revolution was theirs too and demanded their proper place in the Republic of Liberty because of all they had done to give it birth and to sustain it. With the August 1 commemorations, uh, the emphasis shifted to pushing for immediate emancipation and noting black American heroes as proof of their worthiness. Crispus Attucks and black patriotism and the winning American independence twice, 1776 and the War of 1812, were the proofs. They also gave Denmark Vesey and Nat Turner places in an American pantheon of heroes for freedom. The emphasis was on rights, and it was spoken in assertive demands and by occupying public places. 
It meant, as the New York Committee bellowed on August 1st, 1836, I'm quoting, to fill every continent and island with the story of the wrongs done to our brethren by the Christian church-going, psalm-singing, long-prayer-making, lynching, tar-and-feathering, man-roasting, human-flesh-dealers of America, unquote, and to preach the Declaration of Independence till it begins to be put into practice. Double consciousness meant saving America from itself by making its history and redirecting its destiny, which the sermons and speeches of the commemoratives constantly reiterated. Also, by assembling on their own days of freedom, free blacks were defying efforts to circumscribe their freedoms and habituate them to second-class citizenship. Symbolically, the out-of-doors activities bespoke their rights as Americans. The commemorations also promoted a sense of community and civic obligation among free blacks, which for the moment anyway transcended the class, religious, cultural, and personal divides among them. As Frederick Douglass remarked in 1857, freedom celebrations were important because, quote, they bring our people together and enable us to see and commune with each other to mutual profit. That mutual profit meant establishing and maintaining black communities that by their conduct would refute racial stereotypes and encourage self-improvement as the truest route to liberty. They also were important because they occurred regularly, because they attracted large crowds, because they took place in many different places, not just cities, but also in small rural towns. And their continual, their, these continual events also attested to the vigor of a free people. The Civil War and the emancipation that came from it would remake the freedom calendar once again. Emancipation was at hand, and the focus increasingly was on realizing the meaning of freedom. The new Freedom Day celebrations took multiple forms and took place on different days, often due to the various ways and times freedom came, as we heard a little bit about. But a constant theme running through such celebrations was one of the responsibility to use the freedom to advance one's liberty. It was not just ending slavery, but redoubling national commitment to define and defend a larger, expanding universe of civil rights. Thus, Freedom Days got hitched to particular events, such as Lee's surrender at Appomattox, the passage of the 13th Amendment, uh, the passage of the Civil Rights Act, uh, 1866, the 14th Amendment, and so on. To the enslaved people in the South, however, freedom took on some different meanings. Freedom came unevenly, in fact, which for a time meant a crowded and even overlapping calendar of freedom days that were highly personal and very local. People remembered when they gained freedom, the appearance of Yankees at their place, their own act of running away, the putting on of a Union soldier's uniform, the first battle. For Southern blacks, freedom days thus were less concentrated than the organized freedom commemorations of northern free blacks had instituted and used to foster a collective identity and political purpose. As Leon Litwack reminds us, when former slaves remembered the war years, what they recalled most powerfully was their individual or plantation day of jubilo, that moment when freedom moved from a hope to a reality. But it was also a time for them of uncertainty. Later accounts of the day of Jubilo in the liberated South posit a story of wild celebrations as slaves supposedly danced, shouted, and sang when the former master informed them of the new day or a Union officer did so. But this was largely a myth. The blacks' responses were diverse and complex. As one former South Carolina slave told it, some were sorry, some hurt, but a few were silent and glad. After all, as a rural people, they were unsure what they might claim and have in their new world dawning.
Responses in towns were somewhat different, for their infrastructure of black churches and associations made possible a more confident and organized response to the moment. But efforts to capture and remember the moment of emancipation, to ritualize and use it, soon emerged. Already January 1 had been reinvested with meaning when the Emancipation Proclamation was read, and that day continued to be important because of its rich symbolism. The new year always promised new beginnings. July 4, too, became important, linking freed people to the nation and its history rather than being locked into white southern contexts. This was symbolized when blacks literally took over the battery of South, uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, the place where they fired the first shots at Fort Sumter, made it their own, and whites knew that it was time for them to stay home. The origin of Juneteenth, as you know, it came from the time when a Union commander, Gideon Granger, on June 19, 1865, in Galveston, Texas, Texas, the last redoubt of slavery of the former seceded states, issued a general order to masters and slaves that by order of the President of the United States, and I quote, all slaves are free. It went on to say that such freedom, again quoting, involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. But then... But, me, but uh, there was also the cautionary that, quote, the freed are advised to remain at their present houses and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be supported in idleness either there or elsewhere, unquote. Freedom was going to have to be worked out personally at the ground level. Blacks and whites of the South struggled to do so. It was the struggle after emancipation that informed and impelled New Freedom Day commemorations. Free people in Texas in 1866 celebrated June 19 as, as an anniversary and continued to do so years thereafter. The day went by various names, but as children there called it Juneteenth, it came to be called such as well. As David Hackett Fisher points out, the growth of Juneteenth was a response to the lack of freedom the freed people found. Whites passed black codes, kept blacks from getting land, and abused them in countless ways. They also tried to repress the Freedom Day celebrations by refusing the use of public land for Juneteenth or other celebrations. This action especially galvanized blacks to assert their freedom by buying their own land for their own collective community use. Already they were doing so in building their own churches across the South which not surprisingly became the matrix and nexus for building a new black community and consciousness, and even for a time, mobilizing politically to assert their supposed rights to citizenship. In Texas, blacks raised money to buy land for public use, as they did in Houston when they created Emancipation Park expressly for Juneteenth celebrations. Being free meant being visible in public spaces, asserting one's rights in one's own history. Juneteenth and other post-war Freedom Day celebrations followed the ritualized pattern of antebellum Freedom Day commemorations. They usually had sermons and speeches, parades and picnics, bands and barbecues. But they also had a new dimension, as David Hackett Fisher has observed. Juneteenth celebrations often included rituals of removing ragged clothes, throwing them into the river, and putting on one's best clothes in memory of what happened in the first Juneteenth. This was a ritual of new birth which in the evangelical Protestant world of black life made all kinds of sense. The day was a spiritual moment of dedication with prayer, thanksgiving, but also ded dedication to march on to personal victory over sin and collective victory over injustice and racism. By the 20th century, such celebrations began to lose fervor, especially among blacks who moved to towns and left the South in the Great Migration. 
To be sure, in many places, blacks put up statues, they named schools after their own heroes, they wrote their memoirs and their histories, they celebrated various days and what have you. Schools and various other organizations disseminated black history and collected black uh, art and music and literature and what have you. And then, of course, the new Negro emerged in the 1920s to assert without question a new identity and a sense of complete purpose. After World War II, the day, that is Juneteenth, was hardly noted. A new generation of blacks who fought in the war and then fought for civil rights insisted on making July 4th their day, too. But the importance of a separate day celebrating black emancipation from slavery of the past and the bondages of colonialism races in the present led to a revival of interest in Freedom Day celebrations. Juneteenth got new life when student demonstrators in the Atlanta Civil Rights Movement began wearing Juneteenth buttons. It gained national attention with the Poor People's March to Washington in 1968. This Solidarity Day brought together over 25,000 people from across the country to march as one for a common cause. Some of those who marched in Washington then began Juneteenth celebrations in their own hometowns. Soon such events, as in Milwaukee in 1978, drew large crowds, over 100,000 in Milwaukee in 1978, into the public square as a day of remembrance and of rededication to civil rights and organizing against racism. Such celebrations also informed blacks' quest for a common national identity with new energy. The revival of Emancipation Day celebrations in the Anglophone Caribbean in the 1980s and 1990s added to the sense of the need to proclaim a universal African peoplehood and purpose. But paradoxically, perhaps, the success of such efforts in some ways undercut their power of protest. How does one interpret that on January 1, 1980, Texas law established June 19 as Emancipation Day in the Lone Star State? During the 1980s and after, various African-American and American cultural institutions began to sponsor Juneteenth cultural events, <coughs> like uh, the library company, uh, more recently. They always intended to make black history more widely known. But what kind of black history, one might ask, how safe would it be? In some places, Juneteenth continues as an important moment of community gathering and celebration. But it has not acquired the nationwide, nation-building power such a day of unity might have promised, nor has it sustained the religious style and power of the previous Freedom Day celebrations with their own rituals of, uh, and prayers and, and dedication and even sacred objects. The establishment of national holiday for Martin Luther King Jr. has garnered the national attention and provided the occasion for public professions of a commitment to freedom with the onus on all Americans to take up the meaning, at least for a day. The deracialization tendencies of Martin Luther King Jr. holiday perhaps serves to move America toward the common cause of freedom regardless of race, color, or previous condition of servitude, as the 13th Amendment promised and uh, as was echoed by King uh, in his most quoted speech. Whether that national holiday will eclipse Juneteenth or other black-created days of celebration, we do not know whether the double consciousness that Du Bois insisted was the core of African-American identity and experience will fade away is also a question for future examination. But surely, the proliferation of Freedom Day celebrations in whatever form, place, or time should remind us of what the first commemoration insisted and Freedom Days thereafter res uh, resounded, namely, that America cannot be free until and unless all men and women are free in the fullest sense. Juneteenth and Freedom Days are, like July 4th, 
time for people to consider and even negotiate the meaning of what it is to be a true American. And let it be so today. Thank you very much.